0: Crush your menopause sugar cravings just in time for summer with all-natural Bossa Bars Menopause Energy Bars. They're delicious keto and intermittent fasting-friendly bars created to help women manage weight loss and energy during the challenging stages of the pause. Try them at BossaBars.com. That's B-O-S-S-A bars.com and save 10% with code HOTCOOL10.
1: Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. This has been a really emotionally charged week for many people. And we felt that this conversation with Bethany Corbin, our guest this week, was important to put on. Bethany is an attorney who works with Femtech and Healthcare Innovation and While we try to not get political on the show, we really do, this conversation revolves more around now that there are telehealth companies coming out, there are period trackers, there are menopause trackers. Is your information safe? Where is your information going when you input it into these apps? Are there FDA regulations? If so, what level of evaluation, do they have to go through the supplements you're taking? Are they safe? How do you make sure that they're safe? And she talks about kind of that line between health care and legal protection. So it's very poignant for this week because a lot of people have this question, and she's very clear and very specific. We asked her the questions you guys would want to know, and we wanted to know. And it was a really great conversation. What do you think of it, Bridget? Oh, I, I learn, of course, every time we talk to our guests, I always learn so much, but things
0: that maybe I didn't even consider that I didn't think about when, you know, a lot of products are coming our way for midlife women, just women in general, a lot of products are coming our way. And in a way, we're grateful that we're being recognized, but we also have to be vigilant that we are taking care of ourselves, that we are looking at products and thinking about, is this going to be harmful? Is there a way, am I protected? Am I being tracked? Am I not only being tracked, I'm trying to track what I'm doing, but is someone else tracking me and what's going on? And who's selling your data? Your information, oh my goodness. Um, And even with your phone, you have to be careful. Like I'm just seeing things lately about, are you carrying your phone to purchase this thing? Or if you're if you're a young woman and you want to get some contraception, if you walk into the drugstore and you have your phone with you and then you use your credit card, all of that can be tracked. Everything is tracked
1: now. They're
0: urging women to use cash. They're you know urging you know people to do different things. Not take your phone in with you when you were using your phone for protection. So I don't know what you feel like, Colleen. I just felt like. Slap, slap,
1: slap, slap, slap right
0: across my face. I feel
1: like it's just everybody's in turmoil right now. Everywhere you stand on issues right now, it's exhausting emotionally and mentally. It really is. And I just think that this conversation is timely for what we're going through. And before we start the conversation, I just wanted to let people know that, Bridget and I, I think we've mentioned before that we have an Instagram page and we're always posting things about midlife. We post things about a website. um, We post things about our episodes, all that fun stuff. And we interact with the thousands of members that we have. But we got a lot of requests for fashion and beauty and menopause products And we kind of wanted to keep them separate from our Instagram page. So we've started a second page. So we would love for you guys to follow both pages, actually. The first page is Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, which you can just type right into Instagram. And the new one, which will be focusing on products and brands and style, and what we think is great, and of course deals, because I'm all about the deals. <laughs> she is
0: all about the deals. I'm all, and that's I like a good deal, but boy, Colleen is really all yeah, about I, the deals. Yeah, I won't pay yeah. full
1: price for anything. And but that Instagram page is Hot Flash Shop. So that's Hot Flash, which we all know Hot Flash Shop. S H O P. So if you could follow that one, because it's just a baby one, just starting. We would certainly appreciate it. And again, listening to this podcast, if you enjoyed it, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts because reviews are great to get this out to more people. And right now, I think a lot of women have questions about, is my information safe? What can I disclose? Where can I disclose it? And we went right to one of the sources to get that answer. So enjoy the episode and we will talk to you after. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Today, we have a really interesting conversation on women's healthcare. You know, Bridget and I are big proponents of the need to have women's healthcare 50 plus become more mainstream. So, we are welcoming attorney Bethany Corbin. Welcome, Bethany, to the show. Hi,
2: thank you so much
1: for having me today. As someone who is in the femtech world, you're a femtech lawyer and you work with a lot of companies, startup companies, and companies that are already existing. My first question is Have you noticed the trends starting to change for midlife women? And I mean that in the sense of healthcare, menopause, all those topics that are starting to come because we are getting older.
2: Yes, great question. So there has been a shift very recently, I would say within the past six to 12 months, towards the older demographic. And what I mean by that specifically is to date, a lot of the femtech, and when I say femtech, for those who aren't familiar, I mean, female health technology, a lot of those products that are on the market today are really geared towards individuals who are in the prime of their reproductive years, right? So it's a lot of the period tracking apps, ovulation, fertility tracking, menstrual products. Um, Those have received a lot of the funding to date. But within the past couple of months, there has been a shift not only in the conversations that I'm seeing um, online, right, startup companies, all of that, but also in the products that are being created and much more of a shift towards bringing women's healthcare innovation to the 40 to 50 plus demographic.
0: Yeah, we are seeing that a lot too. You know, when we, Colleen and I started this podcast, we were unaware of so many products there for women who have already gone through menopause and the situations that they face. But we had to really search for these products. Um, It was not an easy thing to do. It wasn't easy to find things. What are some things that you're seeing that are bringing these types of products and these types of healthcare issues to the forefront?
2: Yeah, so there have been two main trends that I have been seeing over the past couple of months that's really driving the interest and also the visibility into products that are geared towards the older populations or products, you know, not just menopause products, right? But just products that might be geared towards, for instance, senior care, because we do have an aging population. So there's two main factors there that I've seen. The first is the population itself has been aging. And so there is going to be an older demographic. And those are individuals, right, who who have grown up with the changing technology right now. And so unlike the generations before us who may not have been as comfortable using technology for their health data and to get health insights, we have a population now that is more comfortable with that. And so as they start to age, they're looking for those types of digital health solutions that are going to continue to help them on their healthcare journeys. So that's one factor. The other factor that's really starting to come up here is an interest from celebrities, right? Or from those who have, you know, influencers, large kind of following populations. They're also aging. And so now they are starting to see the lack of solutions out there for women's health right now. And they've become very interested in making that public. And so a lot of these topics like menopause that were never talked about before, are you're seeing them much more in mainstream media now, you know, on TV tv facebook much more of an open dialogue than anything we've ever had before and that's really starting to bring these products to light as well
1: one of the concerns that we hear from listeners and um, people on social media is that by the celebrities getting involved are they really qualified to be speaking on menopause and who are they connecting with? Like how careful do you need to be just because Gwyneth Paltrow is investing millions of dollars in a company called EverNow, which is a wonderful company. How do you know that they've really vetted the companies that they're investing in?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Not only for menopause, right? But for companies all along the women's health spectrum, because one thing that's that I have seen, and that studies have proven, is that a lot of the products for women's health that are on the market today in this femtech space actually are not accurate, and so they're not providing the insights and the information that women think that they're getting. Um, And and we've seen that, for instance, like with period trackers, there have been studies that show, you know, that the accuracy rate for like an ovulation tracker might be the best accuracy rate might be 21% accurate, and you know, a substantial portion, like 95% of period Tracking products on the market today have inaccuracies, or they're using technology that has been scientifically proven to not be an accurate indicator of the types of health conditions that they're trying to monitor. And so we do have that same risk in the menopause space. And just because a company garners a lot of interest and a lot of attention doesn't mean that it has necessarily been scientifically tested, scientifically proven, right? It doesn't, it also doesn't mean that there are scientists or medical professionals on the board or advising behind the creation of these products. There's actually a huge gap that I've seen in femtech products generally where the tech company is creating the product, but they're doing so without any type of OBGYN or medical oversight or influence. And so consumers don't really have a way to know that. And the burden is really on them to try to investigate these products. So back to your specific question, I would not take a celebrity's endorsement as, a, you know, an indication that yes, this product has been tested, it works, right? It's scientifically proven. I would look at the methodologies that the company and the products are using, um, and just kind of, you know, seeing if those seem like they are scientifically valid. Seeing if there have been any studies or clinical testing or trials done on those products, and then also talking, you know, to healthcare providers, seeing if they think that that's a reliable method before just taking a celebrity's word on that. How can they get away with doing that? That's that's a question of mine. It, it confuses a lot of people, right? Because you would think that any type of healthcare product being put on the market should have some level of oversight. And where the distinction lies is we're dealing with kind of tech products. So anything like an app, right, or a wearable, those are subjects still, you know, if they're providing medical insights, they may still be subject to um, enforcement, right, or oversight by the Food and Drug Administration, but they're going to be within a really low classification. They'll probably usually be class one devices. And so a lot of times they're subject to enforcement discretion by the FDA, which really means that they're not getting that type of oversight that's going to make sure that they're clinically accurate. And so as a result, right, they're not subject to having to go through those clinical trials or those, you know, studies and proof that they are going to be safe and effective and, and accurate. Uh, The other problem, too, is that a lot of times the apps and the wearables out there fall within a regulatory gray space when it comes to data protection as well. So a lot of consumers don't realize, but the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which is known as HIPAA, and that's really the federal framework for protection of health data privacy, it's actually not going to apply to most of those femtech apps and wearables that are out there today. So you could give that same health information to your doctor who's billing insurance, and they would be a covered entity under HIPAA and have to protect your data in accordance with those federal laws. But if you take that same exact data, you give it to a Thumbtack company who is not subject to HIPAA, those same protections don't apply. So
0: that's why we were seeing a lot of things about, uh, especially, and I know, typically hot flashes and cold topics doesn't get political but this might get a little political but with the recent supreme court leakage that came out about abortion a lot of things came out saying don't use your period tracker or don't use you know that tracker because then people could find out if you're not having a period if you're pregnant is that you know is that another thing that comes into play that could be a scary situation
2: Exactly. And it's interesting, right? Because these data practices for these types of femtech companies have been going on for a long time. And this isn't to say, right, that a lot of femtech companies don't have really robust data practices, right? Protection, security of data. There are some really great companies out there. There's also femtech products, right? Who, Because of their nature, right? Maybe they're a drug or maybe they're a more, you know, like an implantable device or something like that, that would have much heavier FDA regulatory scrutiny. Me. but for those you know very popular you know tracking apps health and wellness apps wearables those types of things that fall in that regulatory gray space um it's it's scary and those data practices have been around right it's it's not new but it's something that is now getting a lot of attention due to the potential reversal of roe versus wade and and that is an absolute possibility right um uh, There are several ways in which a law enforcement officer could get data from one of those femtech applications and then use that data to prosecute the woman for an illegal abortion, right, or intent to commit an abortion. Um, And a lot of it comes down to the fact that this data that you're providing to these femtech apps, not just the period tracking ones, but, you know, menopause ones, all of those oftentimes in their privacy policies, they will allow for the downstream sale or disclosure of that data. And you as a consumer, right, you can read all the privacy policies you want for for that application. But oftentimes your choice is, yes, you accept, right, or no, you're not going to use the app and get the insights. So it's not a real meaningful choice. And so as a result, you are oftentimes consenting to the downstream sale of your data. What then happens, right, is that data can go to data brokers. It can go to sites like Facebook that can target you with targeted advertisements. Those data brokers, right, can compile the data and sell it. And they can sell it to anybody, right? Like you could go and and buy some data from a data broker for a, a fixed fee. And that's really interesting because law enforcement officers have the ability to go to data brokers and buy data that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get without a subpoena. So, there is a lot of concern there. There's also concern because privacy policies for these apps do typically allow law enforcement officers um, to ask for that data. And the app has, you know, typically a provision in that policy that will allow it to disclose the data to a law enforcement officer or upon receipt of a subpoena. So, the practices, uh, you know, privacy practices of a lot of these companies are finally starting to come into play. But it's interesting because the only <laughs> The only way this is getting attention right now is is with kind of the period tracking and the younger women's health apps, even though these same considerations apply to the older demographic apps that are out there today. So there are so many
1: things to unpack from what you just were, were saying. Just so I can start with the understanding, if if a listener sees something that is a menopause product or a midlife product or something for anxiety and depression, whatever the case may be, and it says FDA approved or FDA cleared, that does not necessarily mean it has gone through the stringent standards of, of clinical trials and things like that. Is that correct?
2: So it depends on the product, right? Oftentimes, if it's been FDA approved, right, or FDA cleared, then it's typically gone through a, usually a more robust process. If it's just, you know, one of those kind of very minimal apps or devices that has, um, you know, been registered with the FDA, if it has to be registered, or if it's just subject to enforcement discretion, you oftentimes won't see that same FDA language all the time.
1: What about something like we get a lot of recommendations for CBD? and i'm curious with the industry how regulated is that
2: yeah so cbd is a is interesting right um it's really come into focus uh, in the past couple of years as a product, right, that can help a lot of different health conditions. And so this the FDA does have guidelines around the regulation of CBD. Um, and it recognizes, right, that they can offer some significant benefits to the population, but also that there are companies out there that are marketing CBD products in ways that actually violate the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Um, and, and that can actually put the health and safety of consumers at risk. So if a company, right, is marketing CBD, I would make sure that, you know, it's either been an FDA approved way of doing it, right, or that there's some backing to show that it's actually a legitimate CBD product.
0: Is is it the cost that's involved? Is that why a lot of companies don't seek this kind of approval or FDA approval? The cost and the time consumption involved, um, why do they not do this?
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, part of the reason they don't do it, right, is that certain products, right, can be sold without FDA approval. It's hard to also catch individuals who market products, you know, outside of the FDA regulatory process. So there are, you know, unfortunately, just as with almost all other products, scammers out there who are trying to get, you know, money for products that don't necessarily work or that they don't have to, you know put a lot of money and effort into. Um, And so you can get, you know, FDA may send warning letters, you know, to, um, you know, if there's products out there that might be marketing unapproved new drugs that contain CBD, that kind of stuff, the FDA, you know, will issue warning letters and go after them as well. Um, And I think right now, I can't remember, there's there's very limited regulation of, of CBD in terms of like FDA approval of it so that there's, I think like one or two products that the FDA has approved with CBD, um, but it's really illegal to market CBD by adding it to a food, right? Or labeling it as as a dietary supplement. So there's just a lot of considerations that have to be taken into account when we talk about CBD and the products that are out there to make sure that they're legitimate.
1: When there are products, and we see many of them right now for sale on things for menopause, like you know, get rid of your hot flashes or take this supplement and you'll sleep better. Very few of them, if any, say FDA cleared or FDA approved. Do they have to go through that process or is it completely voluntary?
2: Yeah. So it depends on the product as to, you know, what portion of the FDA regulatory process is or is not required. You know, like there's an entirely different process for the regulation of supplements, right, than, drugs or medical devices. So there are... And and it's very interesting too, right? Because what you are or are not allowed to say about your product still has to fall within advertising guidelines and restrictions. So, you know, the FDA regulates dietary supplements. And so those have to comply with the FDA's supplement rules. And there's limits on what they can or can't say about that product, right? So they, you know, if they're trying to make health claims about what the product does, right? Like the supplement eliminates hot flashes, right? Things like that, they may not be able to say unless they've actually undergone scientific testing and have scientific data to support those claims.
0: So is it the wording, like, could they say may help hot flashes instead of does help hot flashes? I know that when I read supplements, there'll be like a little warning sign or something like that on it. Or is there wording like that that they can do, can put on their products?
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, The FDA has some pretty robust guidelines on what can or can't be said for those types of supplements. Um, And so, right, they can, you know, if they're trying to make those health claims, those are a bit different, right, than just trying to, you know, making a, a much more generalized statement about what that product could or could not do, you know, may help with this. That's definitely a way, you know, to, to kind of walk that back a bit. It's also important to make sure that any of those products with their claims are not being false or misleading to consumers, um, because while the FDA does regulate the substance of what you could say for, you know, a supplement or advertisement. The FTC Federal Trade Commission also regulates advertisements from the general perspective of unfair and deceptive practices to consumers. So if you market something that even though is factually correct as written, right, if it's gonna have an effect on a consumer that could cause them to misinterpret that you know or anything like that then you also kind of risk getting in trouble with the FTC so it's a very fine line to walk there and you do see companies regularly getting in trouble for their advertising practices
1: for women of our demographic that are looking at all these products and saying is there a certain keyword I should look for to show that it is a legitimate product for me to try or there words in the advertising that I should avoid do you have any suggestions for that
2: yeah, it's it's difficult. It's,
1: I know right? it's complicated. I, I know because versus may versus shall and it's all in the language. But are there any red flags that say mm, they're making, you know, assessments that they cannot actually satisfy or, uh, you know, have test you know, proven tested?
2: Yeah, and, and you know what? What always bothers me about this is that a lot of times the burden is placed on the consumer to have to do that research, right, and find that information out. So, if you're looking for a credible supplement, oftentimes those are going to have some type of, you know, peer-reviewed scientific literature that's supporting their safety or their effectiveness, um, and it, you know the dosages that they're recommended will have some scientific backing, um, and you'll you'll typically see those in studies. Um, you know, if you. Kind of go and in, in you search on Google right to make sure that there's something backing that um, you know it's just it's so hard to know otherwise because the language that these companies are allowed to use is pretty broad um, and what one company uses to say something could be slightly different and give you a little more comfort than what another company producing that exact same product uses and it doesn't necessarily mean that one is right over the other it just you know means that they have different advertising or marketing organizations, right? that they're trying to make it sound a certain way. Um, so, you know, with that, that in mind, you know, I would be careful of what supplements you do choose to use if you haven't talked with your provider about them, right, or a nutritionist to see kind of what brands that they recommend. They are typically very knowledgeable, right about, what is safe out there because you also don't want to get in a situation where you're taking something that's unsafe. And, and that has happened, right? Where these supplements have caused downstream negative health impacts to individuals who take them and they had no idea, right? They thought they were taking something healthy and it, for instance, had a negative impact on your liver, which you found out five years later. Um, so that can, that can be difficult. Um, and then, you know, so definitely talking to your provider, I would think is, is very helpful and also just kind of seeing what the general atmosphere is around that product online. So sometimes you'll see reports where people have said, you know what, this, this caused me really harmful effects. And you'll see that kind of in blogs, right? Comments, online communities, um, that kind of stuff as well can be helpful to just see if that's even a a legitimate product that you should be working with. Um, And the other thing too, right, is, uh, you know, you can always call the manufacturer and ask what published studies they have to back up their claims. Um, You know, and I would also just make sure, right, sometimes you'll see a product claiming, right, that it's like a cure or it's, you know, all natural or has like a money back guarantee. Um, I would be careful if you see any types of products out there that just sound too good to be true because they likely are. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then one other thing, too, um, if, if you have certain brands that you're using, um, like NSF International, right, U.S. Pharmacopeia, if they have those types of labels on them, um, those actually verify that the product contains the ingredients that the label says. So that can be another indicator, right? Do they have one of those kind of stamps of approval?
1: Can you repeat those two titles for the listener so
2: they know well, yeah, understand. there's a couple of them. Um, so NSF International, US Pharmacopia, um, I think another one is Underwriters Laboratory or Consumer, Consumer Lab Seal. Those are a couple of the ones out there that just actually have undertaken that kind of extra step of verification of what's in their product.
0: Okay, because I was going to ask about that, and you were saying Google. You know, if you want to Google, but I love the fact that you could call that company, look up and call that company themselves, and ask them what research has been done.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes Google will have it. Right. Sometimes they won't. What you will also find sometimes too is that when you contact the manufacturer directly, they might they might be a little cagey. Right. They might yeah. say, hey, um, you know what this this particular ingredient in our product has scientific studies that support it okay that's that's great but what about all these other ingredients in your products um, have those been tested right have those been scientifically proven that they're not going to be harmful to you so you know sometimes you just have to dig a little deeper into the information that they give you because they might be saying this one tiny component of their supplement has scientific studies but not their entire supplement not their entire product that's so important for our listeners to know cuz we you know
1: we hear all the time well I don't know if this if I can take this is there something contraindicated to medication I'm already taking and it's so important like you said to talk to your healthcare provider to make sure that it's safe for your individual you know situation.
2: If I could exactly ship- if yeah, that's sh- absolutely right because your medications yeah. that you're already on, some of those might not be able to be taken with certain supplements or they have to be taken certain like 4 hours apart, right? Or you're going right. to affect the absorption of certain pills that you take. So, I would I would not recommend just kind of buying a supplement off the shelf without talking to your healthcare provider first.
1: Right? And and if we could shift a little bit to the female aspect of the tech industry, you know, we hear a lot from people saying there are 4,000 different little blue pills for Viagra, but there's none for women. There's, you know, like, why is it that the female industry seems to be so much slower in getting out there to society?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So, the femtech industry was first coined only in 2016. So, that is... Very recent, Um, right? This kind of stems from a couple of different problems. The first is that women's health really was not a priority for centuries. Um, In the U.S., right, women weren't even allowed to participate in clinical trials until around 1993. So the data that we have on how drugs and diseases impact women, that starts pretty much around 1993, not the same level of data that we have on men and, you know, kind of how diseases impact males and their physiology. So what we have historically seen throughout the decades is that men's health, right, their diagnoses, their symptoms, et cetera, are really applied to women on a one-size-fits-all basis. And as we've started to include women in clinical trials, we see that that's not true, right? Um, a lot of times, for instance, heart attacks, right, can present with different symptoms for women than men. And women are oftentimes ignored, right, sent home. There are studies that show that it takes women, I can't remember if it's, you know, seven to 10 times longer to get the care that they need because their symptoms are different or because their pain is discounted. And a lot of that just stems back to the fact that women have been historically excluded from modern medicine. So... As a result of that, we have seen over the the last couple of years a real push from women who want to understand their bodies, right? They want to know, and they're starting to demand more personalized medical interventions for them. And that is new, and that is wonderful. And that is kind of the the background that spurred the creation of the fam tech industry in the first place. And so we're starting now to finally move women's health out of the shadows, because that's another big component here, which is men's health, right, has been talked about for centuries, women's health hasn't. And there's a certain stigma and taboo that's associated with discussions of female health and female anatomy. And so oftentimes, right, conversations about menopause or menstruation or fertility weren't public conversations, right? They were conversations that you had to have in private, behind closed doors, if you even had them at all. Um, and so because of that, a lot of p- women today don't feel comfortable talking about their bodies, don't feel comfortable even talking about their symptoms with doctors who are right trained to help them improve their health and their wellness. And so it took a long time for that stigma to start to break down. And now as women are demanding these more personalized solutions, they're becoming much more willing to talk about it open and in the public. And that's, that's wonderful. And we've started to see this femtech industry really start to boom. The problem is society as a whole still hasn't changed, you know, to the extent that we need it to, to make these impacts on women's health. So what often happens is that a femtech founder will try to go get investment for her product. Often the venture capitalists that she's trying to pitch her product to are male. We still have that gender imbalance at the venture capital level. So, whenever they go to talk to the male venture capitalists about their products, the males kind of sit there and go, eh, I don't really want to talk about this. This kind of makes me uncomfortable. They also think, that doesn't impact me. (laughs) Um, You know, that's not a problem that I have with my health. Um, That's kind of irrelevant. I don't see the need to fund that product right now. So, not only do women have women founders have all of the challenges that a normal startup has getting funding, they have this added hurdle where they have to explain why their product is even relevant to a lot of the venture capitalists that they're pitching to. And so that has really slowed the progress in women getting their products launched, getting funding for it, getting that message out to the public. Um, So that, you know, that has kind of really slowed the industry. And even though Femtech, um, I can't remember if it was in 2021, where it hit over a billion dollars in funding for the first time, we now have some of our first Femtech unicorns out there who have raised substantial amounts of money. We're getting more and more attention. Um, Still only about 4% of all of the total research dollars that go into healthcare go to women's health today. Wow.
0: Wow. And so, you know, when you were talking earlier about that 4%, a lot of that is going to the, you know, the reproductive years. And Almost not all of it, yeah.
2: All of it, oh my Almost goodness. All. I would say that the majority goes to menstruation, ovulation, fertility, um, you know, products like period pads, tampons, menstrual cups, trying to reinvent that industry right now. Very little, I can't remember if it's maybe 1%, somewhere between like the 1% to 5% range has historically been going to chronic women's health conditions or health conditions, you know, like menopause or those that are affecting the aging population.
1: Wow. That that seems to be changing though. And, and at least from what we are seeing in this industry, it seems like there is a small swell starting of femtech companies that are starting to get
2: funding. What do you attribute that to? Yeah, so we have, we've definitely seen that trend too. It's interesting because whenever we were talking last year, I was talking to individuals who were kind of looking at femtech trends, um, and they predicted that menopause was actually going to be one of the top trends that we saw in 2022 and 2023 for investment. And I think it really goes back to, to a couple of things, right, which is we're being, there's there's more of an emphasis right now on being more inclusive than there was in the very beginning stages of the femtech life cycle. So I think there's a realization now that a lot of the products on the market are exclusive of individuals who aren't in their childbearing years, right? Who don't want a child, who maybe because, you know, maybe they're, identifying with the LGBTQ community, right? And that's not something that they're interested in at this point in time. There's a lot of exclusion that happens in femtech for those types of populations. And we've seen a real emphasis in in recent months on inclusivity. And so I think that's, that's part of the reason that we're starting to see an expansion of the femtech products on the market, right? The other is menopause has gotten a lot of attention recently. Um, as we've seen some of the celebrities start to age, right? And so they're bringing attention to that. And with that increased attention comes a promotion of the statistics, right? Of how big of a problem menopause is, how many women this impacts, how many women, you know, I mean, everybody, all the women, right, are going to go through menopause at some point in their lives. It's 50% of the population is going to have this problem. So, from that perspective, you also see, right. And this is obviously not the reason that anybody should go and make a a menopause or femtech startup. Um, but you see, venture capitalists start to realize the investment opportunities and the ability to kind of capitalize on those products. And that makes it a much more lucrative market to them because of this increased publicity that we're getting. And then I think, you know, as we've talked about, right, you have just the aging population. And so those individuals who have grown up with and understand this technology are much more willing to use it as they continue to age versus trying to get, you know, my grandmother, right, who's 90 to, to log on to an app. Whenever she can, you know, barely figure out how to text. So I think we have that change too in how tech savvy our population is.
0: And another thing, this our population, our demographic, we are powerful consumers. Yes, if, you know, they need to look at who's spending the money, who, what, what age group is spending the money, can afford to spend the money, and like Colleen says not the younger group that's using our credit cards to pay for it,
2: (laughs) you know? Right. Right. And one of the stats that has really come out of that, just for femtech in general, right, is that women are making about 80% of those healthcare purchasing decisions. So they, if they have products that are targeted to them, right, that's going to substantially increase the amount that they might spend within that portion of the industry. So I think that's really important. And I think what's also starting to come to light, right, is that, Menopause isn't just something, right, you hit for a year and it's over. It is a long process. So we're, right, part of the rationale around targeting fertility, right, and period tracking is because of how many years, right, you're kind of in that phase you're also in that menopause phase for a substantial number of years. And sometimes it's, you know, a 10 to 20 year journey that starts with perimenopause, right? And then you have constantly changing symptoms, then you have menopause, postmenopause. And so there's a lot of opportunity for solutions in that long time frame. And so it's not just kind of a, a one and done solution now. And I think companies are starting to realize that growth potential.
1: So you were mentioning that the menopause industry, you see a a kind of an improvement in 2022, 2023. Are there other areas of midlife, whether it's mental health, wellness, that you also see trending upwards in the coming year for Femtech?
2: Yes. So mental health is one in general, not just specific to women, um, that has gotten a lot of attention recently. There have also, as, as we were talking about with the period tracking apps, been studies that show that the privacy policies around mental health apps are, I can't remember how one company called it, if it was sketchy, right? Or it was some some term that indicated that they are, they're not great. Um, so you do kind of have the same privacy and security issues with those health apps as well. The other thing that's, Starting to change, and I think we're going to see more of this in the next five years. Are going to be solutions that are focused on breast or uterine or ovarian health, but um, more focused on chronic disease management rather than right periods and menstruation. Things like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine fibroids. That I think is is going to be. I think the um, numbers are that it's maybe like five percent of the market today and it's going to be about 30 percent of the market in the next couple of years and there's already some really unique companies out there that are trying to innovate in that space there's one company that's you know trying to create a blood test for ovarian cancer and that can impact women you know kind of throughout all stages of their life but we also see it you know in the older demographic as well and so there's much more of those chronic care condition um, treatments and apps and those types of things I think are going to start to come to life now.
1: That's that's wonderful news because we have interviewed several doctors who have talked about blood tests that are coming up to detect different cancers that if detected early, like pancreatic and things like that, that could actually make a difference in saving a life. So if that trend is going upwards, that's wonderful to hear because... That just means that there's that much preventative because it seems like we're always putting a band aid on an issue, but the prevention aspect of healthcare has not been that strong. Do you
2: see that changing? Yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of times, and especially for women's health, we see reactionary measures. So you have this symptom. Okay, let's fix that symptom. Let's not address the underlying problem that's causing that symptom. Or, you know, at the extreme level, right, uh, that's all in your head. And so, yeah, I'll give you some some Advil, right, for your headache. But all of your symptoms are in your head. Go home. Um, and and women's pain is often significantly discounted. So there's a lot of reactionary measures. Uh, Situations in healthcare for women that we see a lot of times. I think that there is a trend, especially in femtech, to make it much more proactive and to make it so that we're not only right addressing these issues, but trying to help people prevent them in the first place. So yes, right, now we know how, you know, we're going to address your actual problem rather than your symptoms, but also for women who might not even be at that stage yet where they have an issue, thinking about it and knowing the symptoms, right, so that if they do happen to have that symptom for the first time, they might think, oh, maybe that's a problem that I need to get checked out now rather than waiting 10 years because I think that this is normal because nobody's out there talking about it. And so I think that's one of the main goals of FemTech that we're starting to see is really this push to proactive education to make it so that women can understand their bodies in a way that really hasn't been done before.
0: You know, you touched on something when you were talking about that that when a woman it seems like women that go in to tell their physician that something is going on it's much harder for them to be heard I, i found that in my personal experience when i've talked with other women that it seems like they have to really really advocate for themselves more so than men when they are with their physicians to tell them what's going on do you find that to be an issue as well
2: a hundred percent. It's still a large issue that we have today. And it kind of goes down, it comes down to a couple factors, right? Which is first, women have historically had different symptoms, right? So a classically trained doctor is, not necessarily going to put together that that woman's symptoms could mean that they have this certain disease if it's not aligning with you know how that disease presents in men, and so I see a lot of times that women are getting dismissed by their doctors, and or they're getting told, oh, you know, what, it, it's likely this. Go home and monitor it for six months, right? And it turns out, and I've had friends and, and acquaintances that have had this happen, right, where it's cancer or it's something that is life altering that could have you know, had an impact if they had started treatment earlier. And oftentimes I see that it's the woman them, herself who really has to go and say, I want a second opinion, or I know you said that's, it's all in my head, right? But I want this test and really fight. And oftentimes it takes them a couple of providers to even find one that's going to listen, let alone start the testing. And that's, that's very unfortunate because it really prolongs and delays women getting the help for their conditions that they need. And it also reinforces to them, in my opinion, that their health care isn't as important, you know, as men's health care or other individuals' health care out there. Because we're saying, we don't believe you, right? We think it's in your head. We don't know that you know your body well enough to think that, you know, to actually have something that's going on or going wrong. And then it causes women, right, to say, oh, well, this must be normal. You know, um, everybody must experience this. And it causes really downplaying a lot of the symptoms and the problems that are out there today, you know, like menopause that really kind of gets downplayed it's really much like yep all the women are going to go through that and good luck to you right um but whenever you start to dig into the different layers you see all of these different symptoms that they have i can't remember it's 34 distinct symptoms or something and like that counting, yes 34 yeah. and counting Exactly. And then you look at the impact that it has on a woman's ability to work, right, or the number of hours that she's having to take off to deal with menopause symptoms. And that often comes at a time in her life, right? when she could be up for a more senior promotion. and And so you see all of these negative impacts that it has. And yet it's taken us this long to even get to solutions that could potentially start to help women in the next five to ten years. One of the things you were talking about before,, um which I thought was really
1: interesting, was the security, your personal security when you're talking to online mental health, um, like telehealth. And that leads me to a question. A lot of women are going to telehealth companies for menopause help and midlife help. How protected is their information and can they prescribe medications via telehealth?
2: Yeah. And so the telehealth landscape has drastically changed with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, really before COVID-19, it was extremely limited, teleprescribing was pretty non-existent to a certain extent, Um, and and you didn't have access to the types of care that you have now. Since COVID-19, there has been a huge uptick in a lot of the demographics using telehealth solutions. And so we've seen a lot of, you know, not only current providers, right, who have brick-and-mortar facilities offering telehealth services, but also just pure telehealth or virtual first care companies emerging into this space as well. And so, so a lot of times, these companies are going to be partnered with actual physicians, um, you know, actual licensed doctors. Most of the time, I will not say always, most of the time they will have proper security and HIPAA compliant privacy and security measures in place um, because that's what's required if they want to partner with larger industry organizations um, like pharmaceutical companies. They have pretty strict privacy and security standards. That said, right, HIPAA applies if that physician is processing standard transactions, meaning really that they're billing insurance. So technically speaking, in an all-cash pay telehealth model, they may not technically be required to comply with HIPAA. Um, Not to say that they don't, right? A lot of companies do that because they know that consumers are going to expect it. It's a market advantage to have those types of privacy and security protocols in place. But if you're doing an all-cash pay, I would absolutely be sure to check out that company from a privacy and security perspective, read their privacy policy, right? Make sure that they're adhering to those standards. It might, you know, they might say that they're HIPAA compliant, which is great. Um, other times if they're not, if they're not saying it, you may just want to dig a little bit deeper for those with respect to teleprescribing. A lot of these companies can teleprescribe. So if you have licensed doctors on your staff, you're able to you're able to prescribe within state and federal regulations. So, a lot of times, because of the public health emergency, there have been certain teleprescribing requirements that have been temporarily suspended. Um, A lot of times, dealing with controlled substances, which would otherwise require you to have an in-person visit. When that public health emergency goes away, there's going to be a bit of scrambling among telehealth providers to figure out what they can or can't continue to prescribe. Um, Some states, for instance, have... Much uh, um, more, str- you know, much stricter laws than others that will allow you to prescribe maybe certain classes of controlled substances or certain, you know, categories of drugs via telemedicine, but not others. Some states right now, right, allow you to prescribe abortion pills or emergency contraception via telemedicine, others don't. Um, So states do have some level of regulation there that, you know, especially if you're operating operating like an all 50 state telemedicine service, you've got to, you know, make sure that you're keeping up with those laws.
1: Well, this has been incredibly informative. And I think our listeners are going to have Even more questions after, so thank you so much, Bethany. Honestly, like we get so many questions from women. How do I trust this product? How do I know what the information I'm giving them is protected? So, answering those questions really is going to help a lot of our listeners. So, thank you so much for coming
2: on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm very appreciative of the time that you're able to spend with me. And just you know, kind of one final thought for the group there too is you know, as you're thinking about which products to use and which ones you can trust, um, remember that your physician or your provider may not have heard of them because these products come on the market so fast so there's a lot of times right too that the data that you think you're collecting in your app that's going to be helpful for you is not going to be data that your provider can use or that's going to be able you know to help them inform your care plan so really working with your provider to understand what's legitimate out there and what could really benefit you versus what this advertising says can benefit you or what it can do from you um, really is going to be helpful going forward Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that.
1: And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bethany, for just
0: sharing all this information about femtech with us, being a femtech lawyer, someone that really knows what is going on with the different technologies that are out there, the different products that are out there for women, and what we need to be vigilant about as women to what is going on and what's being shared about us. Out in, the, out in the world. It, it's a very scary, unsettling time right
1: now. We respect everybody's right to their beliefs and their opinions, but there is a line that needs to be drawn when it comes to pers- personal and private information. And we just think that with innovation, innovation is wonderful, mm-hmm. but we need to be protected with this innovation. And the fact that a law enforcement officer can gain our data information Off of someone who downloads it from an app is a very frightening situation. And it's something that all women of all ages, really everybody, not just women, we need to be aware of it so that we can protect ourselves. Please follow us on social media. And like
0: Colleen said, we're starting our new hot flash shop. So check that out. Yeah. Share this with your friends, Uh, review, like, subscribe, do all those fun things. And thank you for listening.